Well, thank you, Sandy, Brad, and Julia for leading us so well. Good morning, Hallows Church. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jeff, as you know. I serve as one of the elders here at our church in the Edmonds Expression. I'm excited uh, to dive in today and continue this journey through the book of Luke. We're finding ourselves today uh, in the last five verses of chapter 10 of the book of Luke and the first 13 verses of chapter 11 of the book of Luke. It's a fairly long passage, but we'll try to get through it efficiently here. But before we go there, before we get into the text... I'd like to share an illustration with you if I could, and and I think this illustration, it ties in with this passage in an interesting way. And so it goes like this. There was a landowner, and this landowner, he needed to clear some trees from his land. And so he went out and he hired two men, two day laborers, to to kind of help him do that. And the landowner, he, he offered to pay these men individually based on how many trees they were able to clear from his property over the course of the day. So he handed each man an axe. He sent them off into a couple of his nearby fields to get busy. And the, the owner told the men that, that he would return later to see, to see how they had done and to, to pay them accordingly. And so you have two men, same tools, same timeline, same task. Now the first man, he really needed this day to be, to be profitable for him. You see, he had many uh, debts and demands kind of weighing him down in his life. And so he was, he was determined to get after it straight away. And so he began swinging that axe, and he did not stop swinging that axe. He did not seem to slow down much at all as the day wore on and as, as tree after tree fell to the ground. The second man, on the other hand, seemed to be working far less than the first one. He did not seem to be in such a hurry. In fact, he, he sat down and he took several breaks throughout the day. He even took an extended lunch break while the first man kept on, kept on chopping and kept on clearing. Now, by the end of the day, the first man looked like he was about to collapse. He was completely spent. But the second guy, he seemed surprisingly relaxed and, and rested. He was smiling. He was cracking jokes. He did not seem at all to be stretched or strained the same way this this first man was. And yet it turns out this second man chopped down far more trees than the first man did. And after the landowner returned, and as the first man began to to realize this, initially he was confused, and, and then he was annoyed, and then he got angry. And he said to the second man, I don't get it. I was working so much harder. I would look over and you'd be Uh, taking a break or eating your lunch, but you still cleared far more trees than I did by a wide margin. How is that possible? How did you do that? The first man asked. The second man, he paused for a moment, and then he kind of smiled, and he said, "What what you did not notice, my friend, is that each time I took a break, each time I sat down to rest, he said, I was, I was not doing nothing. He said, each time I took a break, I was resting, but I was doing something else too. You see, each and every time while I sat down to rest, I was sharpening my axe, too. Each time I slowed down and sat down, I was sharpening my axe at the very same time. And so this man, this very wise man, as he took time to pause during his very demanding day, based on how he paused and what he was doing while he paused, he was able to be far more efficient far more effective than, than this other man was, this, uh, this other man who really just pushed through the entire day with no 
no breaks at all. And so I'd like to ask you to consider this morning, would you say you're more like the first man in this story or, or the second? In an interesting way, we're going to see in this simple illustration of these two men something about the difference between the two sisters in today's passage, Mary and Martha. And we're going to see something, too, about the difference between some of us sitting here in this room this morning. Now, we're going to work our way through this passage uh, under three headings, a problem we face, a prayer we're given, and a promise we need. First, a problem we face. This is the first, last five verses of chapter 10. Let's meet Mary and Martha there in verse 38. While they were traveling, he, he being Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked the Lord, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. A pretty famous passage, Mary and Martha, they're both... Uh, very significant for us, and we'll talk about them both, but let's start with Martha. Martha, I think, is going to show us a problem here that that many people face, both both then and now. Martha actually seems like a a pretty modern sort of person in some ways, a a strong woman, an ambitious woman, and it seems at least at first glance that Mary kind of has her life together. You notice if you look carefully, it says Martha invited Jesus into her house. It doesn't say Mary's house. It doesn't say Lazarus's house. It says, says Martha's house, and that's Martha. She has her financial situation in, in order, it seems. She's a homeowner. She's the one who's figured out how and where her siblings would live. It's, it's her home, we're told. And so Martha, at some level, is, is responsible, uh, successful even. We see she's very goal-oriented, too. We're told in this passage she had a lot on her plate, right? It says she has many tasks to complete. She has, a, she has a full calendar. We also know that Martha is somewhat uh, assertive, uh, confident. You may remember in John chapter 11, she basically tells Jesus what to do. In John chapter 11, at the funeral of their brother Lazarus, Jesus tells them to, to, to roll the stone away from from the grave, right? And Martha, what does she do? She cuts him off. She says, Jesus, you don't want to do that. Don't be foolish. He's been dead for four days. The, the stench will be unbearable. And so Martha, she's not shy about speaking up, it seems, when she sees a problem. And she does it in today's passage too, we'll see. And so Martha is all these things that are often admired in a person these days. She's uh, really a, a take charge kind of person. She likes to be in control. And yet Martha, we see in this passage and others, despite those appearances, is is really not doing very well at all in her life. She's struggling in certain ways. There's a certain inner turmoil and inner restlessness inside of her that begins spilling out into different areas of of her life. And you heard some of that coming out in verses 40 to 41. It says in verse 40 that Martha, because of her many tasks, she was she was very distracted. She was 
very busy. She was too busy, and because of that, she was not very focused. She could not, she could not stay, stay on, on task, right, because there were too many tasks. And what was all this busyness distracting Martha from? The passage is crystal clear on that. What all of this busyness in Martha's life was distracting her from was, was spending time with, with Jesus, she was racing around, taking care of everything, doing lots of things for Jesus without actually spending much time at all with, with Jesus. And Jesus knows this. He sees this, right? He knows this is a problem, and he says something about it in verse, verse 41. He says, Martha, Martha, what is going on? You are worried and upset about many things. And the word there, worried, it can mean kind of being torn in many directions at the same time. And the word upset gives a sense of kind of being tossed along in the waves without really having much control over the direction that you're going. And so in reality, Martha is not doing so well. She's, she's frazzled, she's anxious, she's irritable. She's taken on too much. But she has to keep it all going, right? People are counting on her in her mind. Jesus is counting on her, she thinks. And so can any of you relate to any of this? Does the busyness of life and the demands of the day seem to get the better of, of you at times? There are indeed many Marthas in this world. There are many Marthas right here in front of my nose. There's, in fact, a, a Martha right here behind my nose, too. Most typically, we are not like the wise worker, right? We're not always good about strategically pausing throughout our busy day to kind of sharpen the axe, so to speak, before we get back at it. Instead, we tend to run ourselves ragged, right? To go flat out, just trying to, to keep up with it all, just trying to live up to all the expectations, just trying to, to measure up to our own standards and those of the people around us. And so we kind of push through, we power through each day, each week, each month, each year, often with a blade that has become, become very dull. For many of us in our culture, busyness is seen as something of a badge of honor and, and respect even. A very common response when you ask someone how they're doing is, oh, oh I'm busy, I'm, I'm crazy busy. And then the response you hear to that quite often is, well, I guess that's a good problem to have, right? It's, it's better than the alternative. It's almost a form of congratulations. I don't know how many times I said those things or heard those things over the course of my career. Now, I, I do understand that you and I, we do have to live up to certain responsibilities. There, there's work to do, right? We have bills to pay. We have families to, to provide for. But, but we do need to be careful with this, too. Because in hindsight, I can see quite clearly that for me, all of my drive, all of my ambition in my life, all of my busyness was in some ways me trying to answer my own inner emptiness, my own inner restlessness by keeping very busy in my life. After all, my life could not possibly be insignificant if I was as busy as I was, right? Surely my life had importance if my calendar was always full with appointments and, and projects. Surely my life was meaningful if other people were looking to me and, and counting on me. But like Martha seems to be doing here, I tended to overestimate how much control I actually 
had over my life, and I tended to underestimate my value and my worth as a, as a person. And so I constructed a very busy career and a very busy life to define myself and to, to validate myself in some ways. I do know that many of your career paths are, are very competitive, intensely competitive, especially in a city like ours. I know that because I've been there. The demands are often high. The expectations are unrealistic. There are no guarantees of, of certainty or security from one season to the next. And as a result, it's hard not to feel anxious and, and overwhelmed at times. But we must be careful with this, with this trajectory that so many people are on. Over time, there are surely consequences to this. A guy by the name of John Gardner said this, he said, we can keep ourselves so busy, fill our lives with so many diversions, stuff our heads with so much knowledge, involve ourselves with so many people, and cover so much ground that we never have time to probe the fearful and wonderful world within. He says, by middle life, most of us are accomplished fugitives from ourselves, as all the busyness of life and work dominate and control us, he says. That's an interesting idea. We become accomplished fugitives from ourselves, he says. And at the same time, I think for some of us, we become accomplished fugitives from Jesus, too. But Jesus, I think, he, said, he has something to say about this. He has something to say to the Martha in this passage. And he has something to say to the Marthas of this world and, and in this room today, too. And he says, you don't have to be a fugitive anymore. Let me show you how to, how to stop running and to, to, to stop hiding behind your very busy life. Here's Martha. She's running hard, right? She's trying to make sure that everything goes well, trying to keep up with it all wanting to serve Jesus, but, but she's a mess. She's distracted, she's anxious and upset. And as a result, she's mad at Mary, her sister, and she's mad at Jesus too. She says, Jesus, don't you care? And why was, why was Martha mad at Mary? What was Mary doing? Verse 39 tells us Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him spending time with him and, and interacting with him, getting, getting to know him. Mary wanted FaceTime with Jesus. She wanted to sit in his presence, to, to hear his voice in the depths of her heart. That's basically what she was after. That's what she wanted. And this is, this is very fascinating to me. Luke here is showing us two women who both intensely want to serve Jesus going about it in two, two different ways. At the core of Martha's efforts to serve Jesus is activity. But at the core of Mary's efforts to serve Jesus is relationship. And notice, if you look carefully, Mary has not been inactive. It's not necessarily one or the other with Mary. In verse, in verse 40, Martha says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has, has left me? In other words, Mary was with Martha. He, she, Mary was helping Martha. She was helping with the preparations too. She didn't leave it all on Martha, but she did decide. She made a choice and a decision at some point, didn't she, where to, where to kind of draw that line. She knew when to step back and pause from all of the activity for Jesus to sit down and to, to spend some time 
with Jesus. And it's very interesting, Martha at this point, she thinks that Mary is no longer serving Jesus. Once Mary sits down with Jesus, Martha thinks she is now the only one serving him. Martha says in verse 40, Jesus, Mary has left me to serve you alone. Make her help me. And so what Martha is essentially saying is, Jesus, make Mary serve you too, like like I am. That's really what she's saying. She's saying, I'm trying to serve you, Jesus, and Mary's just sitting there, sitting there. Make her, make her serve you too. But Jesus says, Martha, she is. She is serving me. He says, I don't need a seven-course meal, Martha. That's not what I want. This is what I want. More than anything you can do for me, Martha, what I really want is, is you. And Jesus makes that all the more clear by what he says next in verse 42. He says, Mary has made the right choice. He says, she has chosen the one thing that is necessary. So Jesus is actually coming to Martha here with the answer to her problems. Jesus says, the one th- he says only one thing is needed, Martha, and, and Mary has it. And then the chapter ends. Chapter 10 ends, and so what is it? What does Mary have that Martha needs? I think you have to turn the page into chapter 11 to get your answer. Unless you go into Luke chapter 11, you don't really understand what Jesus' answer is or what Luke's answer is. And as you go into chapter 11, what you find is a teaching by Jesus on, on prayer. And if you're not paying close attention, it seems like the story about Mary and Martha at the end of chapter 10, and this teaching on prayer at the beginning of chapter 11, it seems at first glance like they're unrelated, but I don't, I don't think they are. Luke is often very strategic in kind of the placement and the, and the ordering of his stories about Jesus, and I think today's passage is an example of that. And so I want to suggest to you that Jesus' teaching on prayer in the opening verses of Luke chapter 11 is really a response to the story of Mary and Martha, it's a, it's a response to Martha in particular. And we're not going to fully understand what Jesus wants to teach us about prayer unless we understand that and, and connect the two in that way. In fact, praying in the way that Jesus is going to show us to pray in Luke chapter 11 perfectly answers the problems of Martha in this moment and the problems of the Marthas in this world. And so we talked about a problem we face, but let's talk now about a prayer that we're given. A prayer we're given as the answer, and it starts out in the first four verses of of Luke chapter 11. Let's take a look. He He being Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation, Jesus says. So this is Luke's... uh, kind of condensed version of what is known as the Lord's Prayer. You probably know that. It's only four verses here in Luke, but these, these four verses could be their own sermon series. There's a lot going on in them. 
But I'm going to today just dial in on just a couple of things this morning that that I, I think help pull and hold and tie this whole passage together for us. Now, we do know that Jesus prayed a lot while he walked this earth. The disciples saw him praying a lot. The gospel accounts make that clear. But something was was different about how Jesus prayed. Unlike some of the religious leaders of that day, Jesus did not seem to pray for attention or for show. He did not heap up empty phrases and vain repetitions like we're told some did. In fact, the religious leaders who prayed in those ways, Jesus called them hypocrites, and he told his disciples that's how not to pray. And even though Jesus was in very high demand, everywhere he went, he regularly and intentionally withdrew from all the demands and the busyness of his ministry to to be alone and to, to pray. Solitary, private prayer was part of the normal rhythm for Jesus. And the way he prayed, he prayed as if the time spent on it mattered as much as the time he spent caring for and serving people. And the disciples, they noticed this. They observed this pattern of prayer in the life of Jesus. And when they did, they wanted to know more, understandably so. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And in verse 2, the very first sentence out of Jesus' mouth uh, when he was asked this question was an absolute uh, game changer. Jesus He really drops a bomb here in verse 2. He doesn't say when you go to pray, go to God as your king or your Lord or your creator or even your friend, though God is all of those things to us. Rather, Jesus says whenever you pray, he says, "Say, say, Father. Now, you may say, come on, Jeff, that's not a bomb. Of course, God is our Father. But friends, let's be be honest here. How, How easy is it for you and I to to just blow right by this statement. We've been conditioned to think of God as Father, some of us for our whole lives, and so I'm not, I'm not sure this always registers in the way that it truly should and in the way it, it would have back then when he spoke these words. And so how do those words register in, in your head and in your heart right now this morning that God wants you, you to see him as as a father, as, as, as your father? Do you say, sure, of course, I get that, I know that? Or does it, does it dazzle you? Does it delight you? Does it electrify and astound you? Because it should. What Jesus does here, you need to know it was a radical departure. God was not addressed in this way in the Old Testament. Here and there, he was called the father of Israel, the father of the, the the nation of Israel, but he was never referred to as a father in this individual, personal sort of way. But Jesus, he shows up and he refers to God in this way over 150 times. And the word that is often used for this by Jesus and the New Testament is the Aramaic word Abba. Abba means Papa, Daddy. Often the first words that ever come out of a baby's mouth of Hebrew descent that speak Hebrew, even today, that is that word, Abba. And so Jesus, he's giving them a model for prayer, a, a pattern, a framework for prayer that begins with addressing God in a way that the Jews had never addressed God before. This was 
This was new. This was personal. It was familial. And so Jesus here was signaling to everyone then and now a new type of access, a new type of, a new level of intimacy, a new status before God, a family status with God. He was signaling a type of relationship with God that would not be one of transaction, not, not what I can do for you and what you can do for me, but instead one of family, of, of who I am to you and who you are to me. And this would have challenged the prevailing views about man's relationship with God in that day. This would have been somewhat controversial. Many would have saw this as dangerously presumptuous to approach God in this sort of way. But Jesus, he's, he's making it very clear here that God is eager to introduce himself to you in this, in this way. The creator and sustainer of the universe, the author of life itself, he is not distant or detached. He is not uninvolved or, or uninterested. He is, your, he is your Abba Father. Papa, Jesus says. Of all human relationships, the father-child relationship, the mother-child relationship runs, runs the deepest, right? It is, it is the most unconditional. If you've raised a child, you know, you, you know just how powerful and unconditional your, uh, your love for them can be. The love of a parent for their child is an unequaled, overwhelming sort of love. And what God wants you to know, as powerful as that love is that you, that you feel for your own child, that love is only an incomplete and imperfect glimpse of the love your Abba Father has personally for you. Jesus says, do you know your relationship with God can be like that? It's that loving, it's that intimate do you realize you are that cherished, you are that love, that unconditionally? Do you know it? If you want an extraordinary personal relationship with God, you have to settle this in your heart, this, this family status you've been, you've been given in the gospel. He is Abba Father. That is where all prayer begins, and that settles a lot of things. It settles our fears and our anxieties. It settles our loneliness. It settles our need to belong. In fact, every time you pray Father, it means you're, you're not lost in the crowd. It means you're His child. It means He cares. That's what He wants you to know by giving us this language and this, this imagery. Jesus tells us to go to God as Father so we can understand how He sees us and how He loves us as His, as His children. And then Jesus kind of continues with this theme, I think, in a peculiar way. There's a little parable he tells in verses 5 to 8. It starts off like this. It says, he, he, being Jesus, also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer, him, answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. And so this guy w walks over to his neighbors in the middle of the night. He starts, he starts knocking and yelling, hey, hey, it's me. Hey, hey, friend, friend, it's me. He says, friend, that's a, that's a sensible way to start his greeting if you've just arrived un uninvited at midnight, right? Remind him of your friendship to kind of ease the level of irritation that you are surely causing. 
And clearly, this was not, this was not an emergency. He isn't saying, my wife is in labor, or my, my kid broke his arm, or a robber's in the house. He says, friend, can you loan me some, some bread? And the man inside is thinking, seriously, you're waking me up for a, a midnight snack? Couldn't you just possibly wait until breakfast? And the man inside the house gives a response in verse 7 that some of us might give too. The man inside the house says, stop it, you're, you're bothering me, we've gone to bed. And this man's whole family was in there. They, these were often little, little one-room houses, and off in one corner they would have a, a big mat that they would all sleep on. And so, so if the man gets up, everybody's up, right? The kids are up, the whole family is up. And, and probably by now the next-door neighbors are up too because they're hearing all this as well. And so the whole thing seems very presumptuous, very bothersome, very rude, in fact. And the man inside the house says in verse 7, I'm not getting up. I'm not giving you anything. Go away. And then Jesus, in verse 8, jumps straight to the point of the story, and it has an unexpected twist. Look at verse 8. He says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend... Yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So this person had a request, right, a need, and it says he was shameless in his boldness as he brought his request to someone who he knew could meet that need. He didn't give up. He kept, he kept knocking. He kept saying, friend, friend, I know you're in there. And then we see that this request was ultimately granted not because these two were friends, but because this guy was so annoying, so relentless, he wouldn't give up, he wouldn't go away, even after he was told to go away. But eventually he got what he was asking for. He wore his friend down. And so what are we to make of this? Clearly this parable is about prayer. The man in the house, it seems, is, is God. And the man shouting and pestering from outside is you and I. And so, so who does this? Who, who approaches God like this? What, is this? what is this teaching us? It's a strange scene, uh, to be sure, but here's what I think is going on. The only way that you and I could possibly approach God in this type of way, shamelessly, persistently, even rudely, is if, in fact, we are truly His His kids. If your three-year-old little girl comes in at 2 a.m. and starts pulling on your arm and saying, Daddy, Daddy, I need a drink of water, what are you going to do? That's the picture we're given here. Of course you're going to get it for her. What would be shameless and rude and overly aggressive for anyone else is natural and normal and acceptable behavior for a little child going to his loving dad. And so first Jesus says, go to God as Father, and here in a rather humorous way, I think he's saying, when you go to him as your father, go to him as a child would, as a little child would, who doesn't always know any better. Pester him, bother him, don't leave him alone, pray, pray like that, bang down his door in the middle of the night for a cup of water if you're thirsty. Your Abba Father doesn't mind. Not only does he, he not mind, he welcomes it, he encourages it. He responds to it because of the love that he has for you as his, as his child. 
Okay, so we talked about a problem we face. We've talked about a prayer we're given. And in the final few verses, the father-child imagery continues here as Jesus gives us a promise we need in the final five verses of our passage. Beginning at verse 9, it says, So I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who, who ask Him? So he says, ask, seek, knock, and it's yours. And when you think about prayer and you hear Jesus saying these sorts of things, many people kind of scratch their heads. I, I know I have. Jesus comes in, he says, ask for the moon and the stars, ask for the greatest thing you can think of, and it's yours. And you say, what, really? He says, yes, do it. Ask and you'll receive. I saw a funny meme yesterday. It said, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is a fat bank account and a skinny body. Please don't mix it up again like last year. <laughs> but the truth is, the, when you hear these incredible claims by Jesus, you can't help but say, come on now, that's too good to be true. But, but why do you think that? You think that because you know what you're thinking about. You're thinking about that fat bank account and that skinny body. You're thinking about your happiness and your health and your career and your new home and these, these sorts of things. That's what you're thinking about. But then Jesus, sort of in passing in verse 13, he corrects that, that thinking, I think. He says, therefore, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus says in a pretty subversive way, I think, don't hold back, go all the way, ask for the Holy Spirit and you say, well, that's not exactly what I had, had in mind. And, and no, it wasn't, was it? Jesus caught you there. You see, you and I, we're like, we are like little children, spiritually speaking, who don't always know what to ask for. We're like little toddlers who have no idea what it is that we need most. And Jesus is saying, if you knew what you really needed, if you understood the one thing that you need most in your life, you would ask for the Holy Spirit. And so why would he say that? He says that because it's the Holy Spirit who can change our lives. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us not just to understand in our heads that we're children of God, but to experience it in our, in our hearts. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts to do what? To cry out. Abba, Father. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says this, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are children, children of God. You see, it's only by the work of the Spirit within us that we can ever begin to experience the type of dynamic relationship with the Father and with the Son that the Bible says is available to us, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit can bring spiritual reality alive at the, at the core of your very being.
being, do you, do you know what that feels like? Jesus is saying this is what we need. It is important, of course, to understand intellectually who Jesus is and what he's done. It's, it's necessary. But what we really need is to experience him, to, to spend time with him relationally, to sit at his feet like Mary was, to listen, to actually sense him, to see, to, to feel, to be excited by, to be melted by, to be amazed by Jesus. We need the truths that we understand intellectually to come alive and catch fire in our hearts experientially. How does that happen? The Holy Spirit makes that happen. You may say, wait, Jeff, I'm a Christian. I already have the Holy Spirit. And if you put your faith in Jesus and the gospel, then, then yes, you, you're right. But the Bible is clear, too, that receiving the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing for a Christian. It's an ongoing, continuous thing. And it's also not, it's also not automatic. In Ephesians 5, verse 17, we're told that believers who already, already have the Spirit are, are nevertheless told to, to be filled with the Spirit. And the way that Greek phrase is constructed, it gives the sense that we are to continue being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus gives this picture of the Holy Spirit flowing like a river into the hearts of those who believe it's a powerful image. And a river, of course, while it is flowing, has much force and much power. It can carve canyons out of, out of stone. But rivers can and do dry up too, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we're cautioned not to, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, to take care not to uh, quench the Spirit. The CSB translation says stifle. Don't, don't stifle the Holy Spirit because that can happen. And when that happens, before you know it, you find yourself in a dry, lifeless, mechanical walk with Jesus that is making no practical difference in your life. This is why Jesus says to be continually asked be continually asking, seeking, knocking, boldly, even shamelessly for which gift? For the greatest gift, for God's very power and God's very presence with us and within us. I do believe God is offering far more of himself, relationally speaking, in the, in the here and now than many of us realize or are taking advantage of. But Jesus says we do need to be asking from a position of humility. We need to be seeking from a, a posture of dependence. And we need to be knocking like a little child going to our good and generous dad. Are you doing this? Is this what you're praying for? Let us be praying for this together as God's people, that we would be a people filled and led by the Holy Spirit as we as we move into the future by faith. Finally, some of you may say, uh, I'm not sure about all this. I don't always, I don't always uh, feel like a child of God. I certainly don't always act like a child of God. I don't always feel like I'm really part of the family. If that may be the case, I want to offer a suggestion for how you deal with that voice when it's talking like that to you. 
Do you know that Jesus, every time during his life on earth when he prayed, he too said, Father, just like he tells us to do. If you look all across the the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you see him again and again saying, Father, Holy Father, Abba Father. Every time, always, he he says, Father, except once. One time and one time only, Jesus didn't say, Father. He didn't say, Holy Father. He didn't say, Abba Father. He didn't say it. Do you remember when that was? Do you, know, do you remember what, what he said? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, as Jesus was hanging, bloodied and beaten, dying on a cross, Jesus didn't say, Father. He said this. He said, My God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? One time, one time only. He didn't say it, but but why? In a sense, Jesus was being thrown out of the family, as it were. He was taking on what you and I know deep down in our hearts we deserve, which is rejection. Rejection by God. But he was doing it for us. He was taking what we deserve. Jesus was being thrown out of the family so that you and I could be brought in, adopted as sons and daughters. He surrendered his family status so that you and I could have ours, so that we could become co heirs with him. That's how far our big brother was willing to go for us. And so friends, remind yourself of your family status and these gospel truths often. Meditate on them, grasp them, study them, think about them, marvel over them. That's exactly the sort of existential fuel that can ignite a deep personal relationship with the Father and with the Son by the Spirit. It's the one thing we need most and it It changes everything. Let's pray together.